This is the morning brief from the Economic Times. You may have heard some fireworks on the street this festive season, but for the Lal Street, the last day has been one of volatile global concerns filled with fireworks that they surely did not enjoy. The FOMC raised its policy interest rate by three quarters of a percentage point, and we anticipate that ongoing increases will be appropriate. Now, the British pound has fallen to its lowest level ever against the US dollar. Our top story this evening, the rupee is at a record low. One US dollar will now cost more than 83 rupees as of today. The financial markets closed out this week with yet another head-spinning day, with one of the main indexes, the S&P 500, plunging for almost three hours into bear market territory. The World Bank has cut India's GDP growth forecast for FI23 by 100 basis points. This is to 6.5% now, and they've also revised the FI24 growth target lower by around 10 basis points to 7%. As we kickstart a new trading year with summer 2079, investors are hoping to leave that somber global mood behind and focus on the Indian outperformance. I think the josh is quite high and maybe a little bit justified because India is relatively doing well and it has been sort of constrained because of the global factors. But with a record $25 billion of foreign money leaving Indian markets and a looming battle between rates and recession, can the Indian economy really be bulletproof or will the likes of the rupee continue to take big hits? The key watch will have to be over the next year as liquidity tightens and as global rates go up, that there is no financial accident in a pocket that we haven't thought about. Well, there's a new thriller in town, RRR, rates, risks and returns, and the climax is yet to play out. Is the optimism in the markets just optics and will macros continue to be a constant spoiler? It's October 25th, I'm your host Anupriya, and we question equity grandmaster Samir Arora of Helios Capital and the macro eagle Sajid Chinoy of JP Morgan on macros versus markets on the morning brief brought to you by the Economic Times. This week on the business of sports, an entrepreneur who is a self-confessed sports junkie. Tune in to hear Yannick Colasso, co-founder of Fancode, an ad-free sport aggregator platform who is going vocal for local and breaking the billionaire's barriers. But can Fancode find enough fans to survive against the big and mighty broadcasters? So tune in on Wednesday, the 26th of October, as we get you the game behind the game, only on the business of sports, brought to you by The Economic Times. Let's kickstart with markets in Dalal Street and we'll walk down the macro street in just a bit. Samir Arora, founder and fund manager at Helios Capital, joins us. Actually, Samir needs absolutely no introduction to anyone tuning into a markets podcast. Great to have you here with us, Samir. Thank you. Thank you very much. You are in India right now. I know you're back in Singapore. The basic question, and sorry for the pun there, how is the Josh Samir at this point as we step into the new somewhat? So actually, I think the josh is quite high and maybe a little bit justified because India is relatively doing well 
and it has been sort of constrained because of the global factors, which means that we can't be jumping with joy in the stock markets if the other markets are going through a serious, uh, like a bear market, 20% plus fall, as that 30% down, problems in China, problems in Europe. But we have done well this year by outperforming. And that itself is quite creditable considering that, you know, the foreigners sold maybe what 30 odd billion dollars and the Indian public was able to absorb that. I used to take the bet that the Indian public will not be able to handle so much selling, but they did. And it has been amazing. So now, if the other markets, that is the global markets, just stop falling, which I think plus minus a few months will happen because they've already fallen a lot, then India can sort of do well in absolute. Right now, it is only doing well in relative terms. So that's exactly the point I wanted to ask you about. This whole outperformance that people talk about for India right now. You actually had called coming into June the market very well. And then you said, you know, we will see a recovery at that point. In August as well, if I recall, you had said we may give back a little bit. And that's exactly where we're sitting now. Correct. Because of Jackson Hole. Exactly. So now we're at a point, I mean, where uh, you look at an outperformance, but it's kind of like when you get a bad test result, you come back to your mother at home and say, I got 12 on 20, but so-and-so got 8 on 20 and the other one got 7 on 20. That is allowed. That is allowed in life. I'm from IIT Delhi where everything was relative grading. But the big picture is that I took the bet not now, but in 1993, but I used to work in US and I moved to India to take a bet on India. And by the way, from 93 to now, India is one of the best performing markets in the world. It is much better than China, which is actually negative from 1992. And Japan and Europe are up like 1% and I think 3% per annum. And India is up some 7 odd percent per annum in dollar terms, only beaten by US. So India actually, in slightly longer term, has always been doing well. So when we say that relatively it is doing well, it helps a lot in compounding of return, which means if the other markets fall 20 and you fall 10, that is very valuable next year because we'll be starting with 90 rupees or dollar or whatever and the other market will be starting with 80. So for us, if you go up 11%, we would have gone back to break even. For a fund or a market or an economy, whatever, stock market has fallen to 80, they need to go up 25%. So that means next year, Again, things will look better because of having lost less this year. Since in all markets, over time, you make and lose, make and lose, and the game is how much you lose in bad periods. If you outperform in bad periods, that is immensely valuable in a compounding sense. But then why the overarching underweight on India? I was looking at a Bank of America survey, the fund manager survey. There's a huge underweight still on India. I don't think it was underweight, but it showed that people still want to invest in uh, China, which has given negative returns for 30 years. So I say that this is a good example of the, what is that, Stockholm Syndrome, where you fall in love with the guy because he's abusing you. And basically, because now there is an ego issue, first of all, and you have to justify the fact that for 30 years you believed in that market and invested four times what you invested in India, and you have done miserably. But now you can't walk out, so you defend it and you say, no, no, I will add even more. There's nothing that can be done for people who want to punish themselves, basically with other people's money, because they are just doing jobs. But generally speaking, overall, depends on which index you're comparing with. I think I read the same report. They're not underweight. It's just that they are today not trying to increase their weight for now because of this logic that India's outperformed. 
Now, some investors say, we will invest in this market because it's outperforming. And some may say, we will not buy this market because it has outperformed so much. So now I might as well buy the cheaper market or a relative underperformer because there'll be a catch-up trade. But broadly speaking, people are interested in India, I think. And even this year, they have put money in Indian private equity and VC. For example, I think till June, I read that they put $30 billion. It's the same investors at the back. I mean, in the sense, there are only a few categories of investors. There'll be a country fund, sovereign fund. There can be some university endowment. There can be high net worth individuals. There can be some rich family offices. It's not that there are different people. The front is different. If they invest in public market, they'll give to people like us. If they give private market, they will do somewhere else. But the end investor is not written off India or walked away from India. So it's okay. It's plus minus a few months. They'll come here also. You mentioned that you were surprised that India held up. Had we looked at 2008 or 2013 when such an exodus happened with 13, 14, now 24, 25 billion dollars, it would have shaken the core of this market. We've held up and we've held up because of a lot of DII money. And I was looking at the data and it's largely SIP. How would you read into that? So one is that actually the retail went everywhere, but which we all learned like after COVID that there were retail investors in every market and they discovered or rediscovered equity markets. But right now the trend is that we are also believers in that. That's why even though I've been an FI for 25 years, now I am getting or got a mutual fund license to become a DII, which basically means that the domestic market, which previously we were looking only as a place to invest foreigners' money, is now big enough and attractive enough and looks like it'll go on for a long time to raise money also locally and invest it also locally. Because our main strength is the fact that our fund management experience is good and we have quite a different track record from everybody in India. But that was currently being used only for foreigners' money. So the reason is the same, that the Indian market for raising money in terms of investor interest, retail interest, Mutual fund flows, SIP flows is becoming quite uh, big. It's already become big. I want to get to some of those stock picking ideas or the sector picking ideas, uh, Samir, with you. But I want to start with what's lost favor. Because of the recession talk, tech has taken a big hit from Meta in the US to valuations even in India. I know that at the beginning of this year, you had trimmed down your tech portfolio and then Jackson Hole happened and then you trimmed it down further. So. Where does that stand now for you? Listening to the fact that earnings are coming in, uh, looking at the valuations, are you tempted? So the thing is, no, I'm not buying back back right now. Because the thing is, we have only got $100 in the sense that the same money can be invested here or there. It is not that... Many stocks are good. Even tech stocks, somebody might say that they have corrected a lot and that technology is a core requirement now so therefore the spending will not come down but broadly i don't want to go into troubled sectors when i have the ability as a stock market investor to move around when i feel that for the next one one and a half years every day you'll be asking them this question even if they're growing but this last quarter and the elation on that made no sense because who has said that currently the u.s has slowed down the whole question is that the u.s is growing so strongly that the Federal Reserve says I have to slow it down by increasing rates by basically because that good growth is leading to inflation and other things. So looking at this last quarter results made, I mean, to get excited with that was not the question. The question is, 
three, six, nine months later, what will happen? So if the U.S. market underperforms, if the U.S. rates are high, which they are and they will remain high, why should I deliberately buy those businesses unless they were trading very much below average valuations for five, ten years? So I think that it's unlikely to do much better than my market or my other sector. Is that the same kind of view you hold for auto as well? That the uncertainty, despite the kind of waiting periods, you know, my neighbors and all are telling me at this point for the XUVs and the Nexons and the domestic plays, you're not encouraged by the auto play either. No, I don't like auto sector because first of all, this is all pent up demand. It's the same thing happened in US for the last one and a half years. And suddenly when the pent up demand went away, this year more stocks are down 30 to 40%, which is more than the market. It's exactly the same issue that there was a lot of demand and then there was no supply because of chip shortage, this shortage, that shortage. So we don't know. Second is there is a big technology shift from IC engines to EV. And actually there are, how do we say today that whose EV car is the best? Because they are all investing big amounts to find the correct car and the technology and whatever else and we don't know whose car will be successful. They have never had that we say 40,000 cars and 40,000 will be sold. Nobody knows. I don't like these things. I like where there is high visibility. Where is the high visibility right now, Samir, according to you? High visibility is where it has been forever, which is the consumer sector and the financial sector. In this, it is not that there is visibility today. There has been visibility for 25 years. IT also has broadly had it's just that IT, because you are currently facing a U.S. recession, has a problem. Otherwise, we always like three themes, which is uh, financials, consumer, IT, generally. I know that financials rank very high for you. ICICI has done very well for you. I think it would still be one of your top holdings. Does the forced rate hike cycle not worry you at this point where liquidity and just the entire environment for rates right now? Yeah, but not so much because, first of all, uh, I think US will now have another, let's say, one and a half percent rate hikes. India will do another, if they do one and a half, we will do one or 0.5 or 0.75 because our inflation is within our broad range. Their target is 2% inflation is 8 odd percent. And even if it's a core, it is 6 point something. Our target is okay, it can be up to 6. 4 plus minus 2 and we are maybe 7 or whatever we are. Secondly, their interest rates are 10-year might be at uh, 4%, ours is 7.5%. So we are closer to our inflation number than they are closer to their inflation number to get real rate. So Hamaria, we don't need that much interest rate hikes. So you think the RBI will stop? No, 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 they won't stop. But if those guys do 1.5, we might get away with 75 and all. So that, now what to do with that? Because this is the choice that we have that within India, these are the three sectors, but financial because otherwise they're strong. If you look at the stock price movement over the last three, five years, it doesn't look out of line with the earnings growth. They've not been re-rated. ICIC has been re-rated, but ICIC had deserved it because it was in some trouble then and their subsidies are very good and all that. But others have not been re-rated in any way, unlike, say, the consumer sector or even the IT sector, which means re-rated means earnings are going 20%, stock price going 40%. They have grown mostly in line and therefore they are always uh, a comfortable place to start. Samir, before I let you go and get your market mantra as well, I want to understand your take on the new listings. A lot of people bunch all the startups together, which is probably a wrong thing to do because they come from varied backgrounds. You cannot compare 
Paytm to a Nike to a Policy Bazaar because they're all they're all different companies, but they unfortunately get blocked into the new age things. What is your sense? Will patients pay? How should investors now look at these? Because there are people looking at Nike now and at IPO price and saying, "I didn't get it then. It's a great business. Should I step in now?" So there are these doubts people have. So my thinking was that I would finally be about only one, and that also not in the IPO, which is Zomato. Which we bought about last quarter. The thing is, in all the others, there will be ten or twenty or fifty or hundred competitors. Only in Zomato, they will not be according to us. So, for example, in the online beauty, there will be ten straight, and so beyond a point, they will all be going to the same market. If you look at the fintechs, there are at least fifty hundred still out there. There were two hundred actually last time in my Diwali. This thing was. That half the fintechs will go bankrupt. I don't know how many have gone, but quite a few have. So there are too many of them in a company where you know, and one concept of a platform is that it should be many to many. That means many customers and many supplier. You can say so. Zomato type at least meet that very well. And also, it is not easy for a new company to do this now. I think all our life we either two guys or one, because a new guy will have to again blow billions of dollars and not be sure, and it will break even maybe seven, ten years later. These guys seem to be breaking even now. As long as they can control their losses on blinkit, I think they'll be okay. The money mantra for the next year, Samir? No, it's not a one-year money mantra, but the mantra is that you do any period broadly, slightly longer. And the equity markets do better than anything else that you can find, particularly at the level of investment and the ease of investment and the fact that you can make take it out any time. So I think equity is what differentiates how what your money will do. One is you have to work hard. Second is that money also is supposed to work hard. Make your money work for you. Correct. That's the money mantra. Thank you so much, Samir, for joining us and thank you very much insights and. From FII to DII, we'll see you in different avatars with them. <laughs> All the very best and a very happy Diwali to you and everyone at Helios. Thank you to everybody. As Samir Arora said, patience in India has always paid off. So the bulls may not be charging down the Lal Street, but the sentiment remains firm. But let's hop across from equity to economy, where there's risk in the environment that's being laced with recession. And rising rates globally, is the optimism in India optics, or can we really buck this global trend? These are some of the questions Sajid Chinoy from J.P. Morgan will help answer for all of us here. Thank you, Sajid, for being here, and welcome to the Morning Brief. Pleasure to be here, Anupriya. Well, glad to finally have you here, and I'm saying glad to because I know that you've had a hectic October start. You've been at the recent IMF World Bank meetings at Washington as well. This is a new trend where everything is about the BTS or behind the scenes. So tell us what the BTS is like uh, overseas right now. What dominated conversations and concerns? Well, I, I must admit the mood uh, in Washington D.C. was quite somber, and as was reflected in the IMF's World Economic Outlook. You know, 2022 Anupriya has been characterized by this tug of war between resilience and recession. Just to step back here, you know, we entered 2022 believing that this time was different. We were exiting the COVID pandemic with private sector balance sheets actually doing very well. The flip side of the unprecedented fiscal and monetary stimulus in advanced economies, in particular, meant that households were sitting on large excess savings that they hadn't spent in the pandemic. So there was a belief, even before the war, that the private sector could absorb multiple shocks without 
tipping into recession so easily this time around. Now, we've had our fair share of shocks this year and then some. The war has meant global commodity prices have surged. Monetary conditions have tightened uh, sharply across the world. The central banks are racing to normalize. China was shut down for much of the first half of the year. Normally, two of those shocks would have tipped the global economy into recession. We've had three or four correlated shocks, and the global economy is still quite resilient. So resilience seems to be winning over, that the private sector strength of corporates and households has meant that while Europe will go into recession because it's at the front lines of the war, the rest of the global economy is not expected to go into recession anytime soon. And that's prima facie good news that the economy is holding up. But what that means is that the disinflation that policymakers so desperately want to engineer in advanced economies is not happening at the pace they want to. And it's almost like central banks around the world will have to engineer some kind of global recession in 2023 to achieve the disinflation that they so desperately seek. This creates large spillover effects because to the extent that the U.S. Fed is now expected to raise rates all the way to 5%, some expect even more. The dollar is the strongest you know, in more than 20 years. And so emerging markets like India are kind of buffeted with this trifecta where you've got global monetary conditions tightening, the dollar is strengthening and all currencies are under pressure, and you still have commodity prices still elevated and crude is still you know, uncomfortably above $90 a barrel. So it's this trifecta that's going to make macro management quite complicated in the emerging markets. You know, I want to go back to the dollar and the spillover effect of the dollar. How critical is that to watch at this point? Because that seems to be at the front of the war right now. No, that is creating you know pressures around the world. We've seen that currencies, both in advanced economies and emerging markets, are under sustained pressure. The DXY index is at the highest level in two decades. Now, what do emerging markets do in the wake of a strong dollar? See, typically, let's take the case of India. We have a natural hedge because we're an Im- a commodity importer. And when you have a strong dollar, you tend to have you know weaker commodity prices and vice versa. When commodity prices are elevated, the dollar is weaker. And so you get some relief either on your current account or your capital account. Now we have this kind of very uncomfortable situation where the dollar is stronger and oil is still about $90 a barrel, which means your current account is under pressure and so is your capital account. Now, what are the instruments that emerging markets have? I would argue there are about three instruments. One is to, you know, if you've got a buffer stock of foreign exchange reserves, uh, that is your first course of action. You want to run some of those down to prevent overshooting of exchange rates. The second instrument will actually have to be the exchange rate itself. There's no escaping that, especially if commodity prices have gone up and countries are witnessing this sustained adverse terms of trade shock, then you know fundamentals will argue that you need a weaker trade-weighted real effective exchange rate to equilibrate your external sector. So some part of the heavy lifting will have to be done by reserve drawdown some part of the heavy lifting will have to be done by currency depreciation, and some part of the heavy lifting will have to be done by uh, you know, interest rate normalization. So my sense is there are no good or easy choices, but the pressure will have to be distributed across these three instruments, interest rates, exchange rates, and reserve drawdown. Let's pick up on the interest rate part then, because that seems to be the tool that was first used, and it's got a Pied Piper effect. And you're saying if the Fed goes to 5%, 
how far does the RBI go? Because there's obviously a big line down the middle at this point when we're reading some of the commentary on how the MPC is viewing where rates go from here. For start, let me say that you know, much has been spoken about the debate in the MPC. I would actually view this as a very positive development. Back in 2014-15, when the MPC was conceived of and actually constituted in 2016, the whole idea was to set up a committee so you've got different views, you have a robust debate, and that leads to better quality decision-making. And we're seeing that. We're seeing a very high-quality, robust debate in the MPC. Again, this is not a science. It's more of an art for the RBI, that the RBI has made up a lot of ground in the last few months. I think the key here is going to be when does RBI have confidence that inflation is going to go below 6%, which is the upper tolerance band, and remain there. And one kind of worry is inflation expectations tend to be adaptive, backward-looking. And so the longer inflation festers at elevated levels, the greater the chance that expectations get unanchored. So I think the RBI will have to cross the river by feeding the stones, given that central banks are raising and raising aggressively. We think if central banks don't keep up, then you know there will be pressure on, on currencies and that creates its own inflation dynamic, apart from you know financial stability concerns. So I would say that we've come a fair distance but it might be a bit premature to say that the that the normalization is over just as yet. What I'm understanding is that they can't celebrate it right now. They can't go ahead and celebrate disinflation anytime soon. So there has to be a pedal on the rate hike. How much they push it is a number that you're not fully ready at this point to sort of put on. Well, there's just so much uncertainty globally that one has to be agnostic about where terminal rates are. The focus right now should be strongly against very hostile global headwinds to protect and preserve macroeconomic stability. And maybe we have to sacrifice a little bit of growth in the near term to preserve macro stability. But what's really important to recognize is there is no medium-term trade-off between macro stability and growth. That you need macro stability to be the foundation on which you know medium-term growth prospers. So I think we need to keep reminding ourselves uh, about that in this global environment. I want to just ask you what you think about forward guidance then. As you've reiterated time and again, Sajid, that it's very uncertain. I think very specific forward guidance by central bankers is actually a disservice. I don't think it's a disservice, but I think I'm not sure how useful it is given the quantum of uncertainty that exists. Because central banks can only make state contingent forecasts, but it's very hard to predict what the state is going to be in three months or six months. So I think one has to read the tea leaves here. If you think about the Fed, it's very clear what the Fed's incentive structure is. Chairman Powell would rather be the 15th governor to engineer a recession if that's what it takes to disinflate, but not be the first governor in 40 years to blow the Fed's mandate. So I think around the world, we have to recognize that the Fed is very serious about disinflating and will do whatever it takes. And I think central banks need to kind of calibrate their policy keeping that in mind. And so to your point, I think it's hard to give very specific forward guidance. I think this will have to be data dependent. I want to get a sense of where do you think this leaves the currency because that's a headline that worries a lot of people. Where does the currency management now leave? We spent quite a bit from the war chest already. Where should one really expect the currency to go? Yes, the rupee has depreciated, but this is in the background of almost every currency in the world depreciating and depreciating typically much more than the rupee. So this is no reason to panic. This is not an idiosyncratic shock. 
it's important when all currencies are depreciating for the rupee not to get overvalued, right? Because the focus really has to be that when this crisis is behind us, hopefully, that we go back to focusing on growth. And remember, we need a competitive exchange rate to help exports. So a weaker rupee, as I have been arguing for for the last six months, is not a bad thing. It is what we need to remain competitive and provide growth. So if other currencies are depreciating and the rupee is not depreciating, then in trade-weighted terms, we're actually getting stronger and we are creating more headwinds for export and making imports even cheaper. Now, this year, with the global economy slowing so much, we won't get those export tailwinds from global growth, which is why it's even more important that the, the currency not become uncompetitive and keep us in play globally. Sajid, anything worrying you? Again, I would say we should not panic when it comes to India. And my only worry globally is we have to be very careful about looking for financial stress, avoiding financial accidents, uh, looking for credit stress outside the banking system. We know the banking system is very well regulated. The key watch will have to be over the next year, as liquidity tightens and as global rates go up, that there is no financial accident in a pocket that we haven't thought about. I think that's where what should be keeping regulators and central banks awake at night. As the doors put it eloquently, keep your eyes on the road and your hand upon the wheel. Well, that's the message from macros and the markets. Though resoundingly similar, the sentiment is divergent. Even as India outperforms, be it on the GDP front or the stock markets, the skeptics can easily say it's a Andho ke desh mein karna raja situation. But there is a merit in the market holding ground, even as the mighty global ones are all but collapsing. But as I said, in this new thriller of RRR, the rate, risk and return, the turnaround is still to play out. And though the frontline warriors are central bankers, it is the fear of the unknown or a surprise villain that is keeping everyone on the edge, but hoping it will be a happy ending. With that, this is your host Anupriya signing off. And from all of us here at The Economic Times, wishing you a very prosperous new somewhat. On a programming note, do tune into our podcast, Business of Sports, every Wednesday, where we track the games behind the game. A big thanks to the team that helped put this together. Vinay Joshi, our producer, Indranil Bhattacharji and Rajas Naik on the sound, and our executive producer, Arijit Berman. From all of us here, thank you for listening in. Remember to like and follow The Morning Brief that drops every Tuesday, Thursday and Friday on your favourite podcast platform across the board.